The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I've spent my whole life thinking about how markets work and how on the whole the market-based system for doing things is probably the least worst system out there. But one thing that markets, and particularly the private market, doesn't do well anywhere in the world, but actually in New Zealand in particular in the last 30 years, is provide affordable housing. So this is small houses, you know, less than 100 square metres, often now needing to be in medium-density type buildings. So, you know, apartment block with 10 or 11 apartments in it. And they might be studio apartments and a few one-bedrooms and three or four two-bedrooms and a couple of three-bedroom departments designed for people who really either can't afford to buy the McMansion or are really struggling to pay their rent. And we know at the moment that New Zealand has the least affordable rental market in the world with the highest proportion of poor people paying more than 50% of their disposable income and rent. It's an awful situation. We currently have, as we'll hear later on in the podcast, 450,000 people in New Zealand who are stressed renters, who really struggle to pay the rent each week. And not only that, they're already getting some help from the government, which isn't actually solving the problem. We're currently spending over $2 billion a year on accommodation supplements. So that's the taxpayers in the whole sending money to people so they can pay their rent. And currently, 70% of people who are in the private rental market are actually being given some extra money from the government to pay the rent. And that is usually going straight on to the landlord. That is a waste of money apart from anything else and is growing fast. On top of that, the government is also paying what's called an income-related rent subsidy, mostly to people who are in state houses. So effectively, most people will pay 25% of the rent themselves, and then the government will top up the rest, the other 70 75%, so that um, whoever's providing the state house or the social house can get by. In total, the government's spending about $4 billion a year effectively supporting a private housing market that has failed to deliver affordable housing. Now, you you may ask, well, how come the private sector haven't solved this problem? There's plenty of money around in the banking system and uh, in the pension funds that we all know about, the KiwiSaver funds and the like. And that's true. Actually, when you look at it, there's about $350 to $400 billion in term deposit accounts in banks, which could be used to build houses. Then on top of that, you've got over $200 billion in pension funds that New Zealanders control, both the New Zealand Superfund, KiwiSaver, ACC, and a bunch of others. Now, at the moment, they invest most of their money overseas rather than in New Zealand because they haven't found a way to connect all that money with the housing need. This is the story of this week's podcast on When the Facts Change. How do we connect all of that money, that cash, which is just sitting there, not earning a lot in a bank account or is helping someone else overseas run a company? 
connect that money with our enormous housing need. So the Infrastructure Commission said this week that we are short 115,000 houses. We know that there's almost a half a million people who are stressed renters who'd like to pay an affordable rent, or even better, get on the pathway to home ownership. And not just any old affordable house plonked in the middle of a bunch of grass. We need affordable, medium-density houses close to schools and work, and particularly train stations, bus stations, pathways, cycleways, so that we can deal with just as big a challenge that we have with climate change. The problem at the moment is that the private funding vehicles that we have, mostly the banks, just aren't set up for it. To give you an idea of the problem, if I wanted to go out there and build an apartment block with 20 apartments and I went to a bank and said, hey, I've got the million dollars of equity which I need to help fund this $10 million project, will you give me a loan for 90% of that? The bank will most likely say no, because that sort of project is risky from a bank's point of view particularly if the ownership of those apartments is spread across a group of people, and particularly a group of people who may have relatively low or unstable incomes. So the banks will say no. That's the problem at the moment where we have an awfully big need and a group of organisations like Salvation Army and a whole bunch of other community housing groups which maybe have some land and even have a bit of cash to stump up the equity and have, in many cases, been building these sorts of apartment blocks. So how do we connect all of that money in the institutional funding sector with the projects that the community housing sector is doing and all of those cooperative and co-owned housing projects that we know are there, ready to go, but don't have the systems or the funds in place to connect those dots and get those medium-density, climate-friendly houses built. That's what this week's When the Facts Change is all about. Joining the dots to solve our housing crisis, to ensure those tens of billions of dollars stuck in an account get put into a an affordable, warm, dry home that's close to a bus station or a train station, probably in our biggest cities, and ensure those people who currently are really struggling to put food on the table can have one of those warm, dry houses and think about their own and their families' futures. I'm Bernard Hickey on When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Welcome to Paul Gilbert, who is the General Manager of Community Finance, uh, an organisation which uh, a lot of people will wonder, what are you actually up to? So, Paul, could you try and give us a sense of who you're trying to connect and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bernard. Our second birthday is next month. So we're we're very young, very new, and we came out of two sectors, really. One is the banking sector in the form of my chief executive, James, and the other is um, I come from a community housing sector. Now, a lot of your listeners may not be familiar with that uh, group of organisations. They're quite substantial. They are nationwide. They're the likes of Salvation Army, Habitat for Humanity, New Zealand Housing Foundation, there's some names, um, Otatahi in Christchurch, uh, and they own and manage homes for people who cannot really afford to either purchase or cannot afford to pay the rent. And so they're, they're, they're basically, I think about 35,000 people a night across the country go to bed in a, in a 
community housing home. And what we were trying to do is match up finance from the institutional financial markets with those organisations to help them to do more in the sense of new housing supply to meet the needs of those people who, who can't uh, afford to pay for things themselves. And how does the, the government play a, a role in here? Because I understand that the government actually provides some funds to these uh, community organisations to ensure that a good chunk of the rent is actually paid for. Yes, that's right. So there are a couple of different mechanisms for that in play in the New Zealand system at present. One is called the accommodation supplement, which is where a private renter cannot afford to pay their rent and so the government tops them up. That might be uh, quite a small amount, in some places it's quite, quite a large amount. In total, it's an enormous amount. So just to give your readers a sense of how big the accommodation supplement is, many will be surprised, I would suspect, to know that in the private rental market, 70% of all homes in the private rental market are receiving a government subsidy. So um, that's about $2 billion a year. And that's not delivering new supply. That's just topping up people's rent. The other big mechanism is called the income-related rent subsidy. And, and that uh, is effectively a situation where the Ministry of Social Development have a waiting list for people who need help. That's now over 24,000 people nationwide. And they register on the, on the housing register. And then the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development has a thing which is called the income-related rent subsidy, which effectively... The, the tenant in that product pays 25% of the rent and the government pays the other 75% up to a market rental level. So those are the two main mechanisms. About three and a half billion New Zealand dollars, so that's 3,500 million for people that don't know about billions, uh, going out the door every year to pay for people's rent. So uh, when one of these community housing groups needs to build houses, they actually have a regular revenue stream that comes with it, their clients. Why is that potentially attractive to someone like uh, a KiwiSaver fund, like Simplicity or Pathfinder? Yeah, great. So about a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, we launched our first, bot. we call them bonds. It's basically a securitised financial product which um, KiwiSaver funds and large philanthropic trusts and foundations feel comfortable investing in. It's something they recognise as a, a well-known and um, well-established norm in the in the uh, institutional financial market. And so what, we've, what we're doing is we're creating a bond where we're saying to the community housing provider, we would like to support you to deliver new housing. So we're going to lend you money at lower cost than you can get from the banks to support your construction finance to get new homes built, because that's what we need. Everyone knows that. And because we've packaged it up in that way and it feels safe and secure and it's a product that the institutional investors recognise, uh, what we've found to our great delight is that KiwiSaver funds like Generate, Simplicity, Pathfinder have been very, very happy in the execution of their duty of care to their members to invest in these products because, to put it bluntly, they're getting a really good return for their members. So they're, they're doing what their job is, which is to try and support the retirement savings effectively of all of us Kiwis in their KiwiSaver funds. We're just making it easy for them. And so the Salvation Army or one of the community groups will come to you and be able to uh, get a chunk of funds, uh, you know, several million dollars to be able to start planning and building 
an apartment block or a bunch of houses in a, in a place which will house people who are currently homeless and can't really afford the market rent. Uh, can you give us an example of how this has worked in the last um, year or two, in particular delivering, you know, not just one or two houses, but dozens and dozens of houses? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the, I think the Salvation Army is a good example to start with. But it was a $40 million bond. So we advanced $40 million to the Salvation Army Social Housing Unit uh, in order to support them to deliver 118 new homes across three sites in Auckland, that being Westgate, Royal Oak and Flatbush. Uh, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Housing came and cut the ribbon and opened those homes um, not so long ago before lockdown. And they are all now fully occupied with people who've been taken off the social housing register. Those homes, just as, as an additional point, um, not only did our finance, which was at a lower cost than, than the army could get from the bank, but it was also on better terms, which means the securities were not reaching inside their organisation and, and restricting their ability to operate their food banks and their other very good um, efforts that they make. And the quality of the homes is outstanding. So there's an environmental impact here as well as a social impact in the sense that their thermal uh, performance is extraordinary. We're hearing of people having a monthly electricity bill of less than $40, which is is um, great news because it's not just about the low cost of getting people into these wonderful, efficient, modern, dry homes. It's also the total cost of occupancy, which if we can get that down, uh, we're helping people in the long term as well. So to think about the potential scale of the sorts of things that could be done here, we know from the Infrastructure Commission we have a housing shortage of at least 115,000 houses. And we know that Kainga Ora, for example, is building only 8,000 state houses. And we know that the private market is just not very good at building the sort of affordable, smaller, particularly medium-density houses that we need, not just for the people who need housing, but also to deal with uh, climate change. So can you give a sense of the potential scale of what could be done here, not just in terms of you know, how much money is in that institutional market, but also the need, given that we've got uh, um, more than... 25,000 people on the waiting list at the moment. Yeah, um, look, we think it's great that the government has stepped up and started building state houses again. That's excellent, and we need more of that. However, I think people need to think of this at a systems level, and if we look at the New Zealand housing system, it's fundamentally broken, and we've been repeating the behaviour that has got it to this state of, of, of catastrophe for 30 years. So it's going to take us quite a while to dig ourselves out of this hole. For us to do that, we're all going to have to play a role. Um, the private sector, uh, mum and pup investors, the government, local government and the community housing sector in particular is where we are focusing our efforts. Uh, the, the sense we're getting, Bernard, from the financial markets in New Zealand, the big funds, particularly the KiwiSaver funds, remember there's 86,000 million New Zealand dollars sitting in there, 86 billion we can solve our own problems with our own money and our own solutions in New Zealand if we, if we just put our mind to it. So the scale of the, of, of the new supply problem is probably about a $2 billion investment every year for the next 10 to 15 years to turn this around, just to give people a sense of how big it is. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Uh, and can we do it using debt alone? Possibly, but possibly not, because people reach their debt ceilings quite quickly. So there are other products 
that we have designed and built that help to support the uh, delivery of uh, low-cost construction finance into the community sector because they're the, they're the ones that are truly focused on delivering affordable product, which is quite a challenge. Yeah, because we often think of, you know, when someone goes to build a house, they put some of their own equity into the project and then they borrow some money from a bank or, in this case, from a, a pension fund. Now, a lot of these community groups, they're not particularly wealthy. They don't bring a lot of assets to the table and typically they're going to have to put up 30 40% uh, of the equity for each of these homes. So what's the next step in trying to bridge this gap? Yeah, you're right. And particularly given the current context and the prevailing market conditions, as we know that interest rates are going to go up, it's getting really tough. It's really tough already for many of the community providers to build in places like Auckland because of the underlying land cost. But we realised a, f- a few months ago, or six, six or eight months ago, uh, James, our CEO, um, stood up a new entity called Positive Capital, which is effectively an equity instrument, which is all fancy words for, um, there's a, the two different types of money, right? You can borrow money or you can, you can, you can have sort of a ownership, and we call that equity. And so what we've designed is the ability for a community group to come to us or a church if they've got spare land or a community group or hapu iwi to come to us and work with us on delivering a, a construction finance package where we have a large-scale pie fund that can co-own and deliver the finished housing outcome with the chip. In effect, it just sort of doubles their balance sheet. So it, it, it brings forward from the future their ability to deliver large amounts of new affordable housing supply now, which is really what we need. So we've designed a machine to help with that. And, and um, that's been very well received by the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development and by the community housing sector. So we're quite optimistic about that. We suspect that will be 10 times larger than our debt program quite quickly. And we We've already we've already got a hundred million out with the debt program, so this could quite quickly move towards becoming a billion dollar program. What I'm also trying to understand, thinking in terms of a banker, how are they sure that they can you know um, protect themselves in the event that something goes wrong? Yeah, look, it's a great question. It's a sort of uh, big one that the whole financial sector and the community housing sector has been grappling with for quite some time. Um, In fact, probably we're getting back 16 years now, Bernard, in terms of the first attempt that was led by uh, Community Housing Aotearoa, which is the peak body for for uh, Tikanga Pākehā um, housing providers. There's an equivalent te matapihi for for Tikanga Māori organisations. And it's called an underwrite. Uh, is the answer to your question. So, so um, effectively, as a as a very effective and powerful mechanism internationally across the OECD, what governments have done, like in Australia, federal and and state governments have done, is they've established um, machines much like our um, what we've done here in New Zealand as community finance, a, a securitisation instrument. But the government gives it an underwrite or a first takes a first loss position. What that effectively means is that they're significantly reducing the risk to other investors who come in later. What that means across the ditch in Australia, for example, is that there's now billions and billions of private sector finance working at scale on the housing problem in Australia. Why are they doing that? Because the government's removed the risk with an underwriter or guarantee. So we, we've had two or three attempts at that in the New Zealand context. It came close with Auckland Council about 10 years ago. 
Um, unfortunately, that facility does not yet exist in New Zealand, but that would be a profoundly transformative way of scaling up very quickly the amount of, of private money that could be applied to this national housing crisis. So is there, are there any attempts to get a similar sort of underwrite in place from the central government here? Because in a way, you sort of already have a sort of an underwrite with the promises, the 25-year deals for the income-related rent subsidies that we talked about earlier. Yes, that's right. That's That, that works very effectively in the uh, narrow swimming lane of what we would call state housing or public housing or social housing, lots of different names for the same thing. Absolutely right. That part of the, of the housing uh, continuum is working quite effectively. I mean, we need a lot more, but it's, it, at least we're getting production of new affordable homes into that part of the market. Unfortunately, that's treating the symptoms of the housing crisis rather than the root cause. What we really need to be tackling are the 450,000 stressed renters who are skipping meals. Um, I, I don't need to tell anyone of your listeners about the extent of social deprivation that we're seeing play out across the country with, with stressed renters paying 50, 60, 70% of their income just to get a roof over their head. And so to tackle that part of the market, we need to be doing a lot more at scale uh, with progressive home ownership products and with affordable rental products. And and so hugely important to to look into getting an underwrite stood up. It's not at this point, it seems, on the central government agenda. So we as the community housing sector are looking hard at working in collaboration with the philanthropic trust and foundations for them to prove the concept in the New Zealand context. And then I think once it's safe and it's demonstrated to work in the New Zealand context, maybe then uh, central government might might, um, decide it wants to participate and and really give it scale. Yes, because um, there is a potential here for not just community housing groups, but housing cooperatives and other forms of shared ownership uh, and the potential to move to progressive ownership where people rent to start with and over time progressively they effectively uh, take ownership of their property. And also to do it in a way which is independent of the banks, which have a very limited appetite for risk. They really want a title held by one person who hasn't has an income on some land. That's about all they, they deal with. And they really don't like large amounts of money being lent to developers with all the risks involved. So can you give us uh, you know, a sense of how much this would open up um, what some of the people are called the missing middle, as you say, the 450,000 stressed renters currently renting in the private rental market? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you think about it, it, it it's quite a, a, a mental leap, but if you think about it, the cheapest and most cost-effective or, or the lowest cost way you can live in terms of having a roof over your head is owning your own home with no mortgage. So that is and has been for many, many years in, in the minds of Kiwis, we're sort of a homeowning democracy. Started to be smashed as, a, as, 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 as we realise and as it dawns on us that there's two, two, two housing markets in New Zealand. There's no housing crisis for people who own a home or multiple homes. And then there's everyone else who's struggling in rental poverty and in that trap. And so I think what we are needing to do is... is as a nation, uh, to realise that if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. We're perpetuating the the issues of the past. And so we're really at the point where all 
people who control and sit at tables with assets and asset allocations and trusts and foundations and churches with spare land. Everyone needs to play their part uh, or we're in deep trouble. Um, and and um, I think the, the path we're on at the moment is alarming. I, I think there's an urgency, there's an importance. If we want to avoid the Johannesburg scenarios or the Kuala Lumpur's where we're in our hotel looking over the fence into a slum, that's the direction of travel at the moment. I don't want to be alarmist, but um, we're seeing in the system uh, here in 2021 uh, people carrying the water into the house with a bucket and the waste out in a bucket. No running water, no electricity, not okay. So um, I, think, I think my message is wake up um, and if you have control over assets or, or resources, then um, I would, I'd strongly encourage people to get involved in rolling up their sleeves in this space. And that's the thing I was keen to bring out in this interview, that there are lots of resources. You know, a lot of people think, oh, we don't have any money to do this. We're a poor country. But when you actually look at the amount of money that is currently in bank savings accounts, which if, it's, if you look only at the household sector and non-financial businesses, it's over $400 billion. You've also got a significant amount of cash held by philanthropic organisations, um, charity groups, uh, wealthy individuals that's just sitting in a bank account um, earning cash or has been invested overseas in shares. And then, of course, you've got the New Zealand Superannuation Fund, the ACC Fund, and as you say, over $80 billion worth of money in KiwiSaver funds. So we're not short of cash, and actually we're not that short of land. Can you give us a sense of how you know some of these various groups, some of the community groups, the churches, actually have the resources, for example, plots of land, and the cash to make this happen. What we are missing is the machinery in the middle to convert that cash into houses. Yeah, essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a um, joining of the dots, Bernard, to be honest. Um, so four out of the five largest projects that we're working on at the moment are on church land. And the church has the land, it has the goodwill towards a community enhancing housing developments, but it doesn't have the know-how or the development cash. So what we're doing in many situations is matching those elements together, connecting the dots between the land, the delivery partners, the community housing providers, and bringing those together. And so uh, I know the, you know it's tough out there, but I am wildly optimistic about the future, and, and it really sits in, in one word, collaboration. And, 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 and um, what we're finding now is values-aligned organisations all the way through from the landowner to the um, land developer to the construction company to the financiers. But, um, super, you know, there are super-motivated investment managers out there who are hungry to invest their money into this sort of a scheme because not only does it give a fair and good return, it delivers a huge social and environmental premium, which is a wonderful story for them to be able to tell to, to their to their KiwiSaver investors. So, uh, look, the future's bright. It's just a question of uh, the will, really. Well, I'll let you get back into it, Paul. Thank you very much for uh, your time. You've been on When the Facts Change. Uh, Paul Gilbert there, the General Manager for Community Finance. Thank you. Kia ora. After the break, we'll speak to Imogen Scoots, who's looking to build co-housing developments using trusts to try and solve this problem. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, 
on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Well, welcome to When the Facts Change to Imogen Scoots, who is doing something really interesting, firstly in Auckland, but maybe in the rest of the country. Imogen, could you tell us about Forever Affordable Homes? You're the founder. So when you say Forever Affordable, does that mean renting or buying or what are we talking about here? So we have limited ways of creating affordable housing in New Zealand, and we've got even less ways of keeping it affordable once it's being purchased by the first occupier. And really in the rental market, the same applies. So all of our tenants out there don't have any way of knowing what the rental increases will be after each year. So tell us um, how you think we could solve this problem, because you're right, at the moment, it's basically unaffordable for people to both rent and to buy. So when looking at a solution, it's a form of co-ownership and in a way to describe it, it's between renting and owning. So you get more benefits, you get more security and stability than if you are renting, but you also have a couple of um, more responsibilities because in effect, you're co-owning. So you're collectively uh, working with um, other shareholders as part of a company to build it and to also operate it once it's occupied as well. This sounds um, very foreign and exotic in New Zealand, but I understand this is quite a common practice, these sorts of cooperatives, shared ownership arrangements overseas. It's curious, right? So cooperatives are not uncommon at all in the space of the agricultural sector in New Zealand and have been around for, I think, over 100 years. And if you research it, maybe it's like one of even the founding places in the world of how to collectively share and work together to get a combined outcome that benefits everyone. For some crazy, strange reason, it just never like flipped into the housing space for us. And then if we look at our um, 
homegrown model of papakayanga where we have land for Māori on Māori land and we're trying to build and develop that, then um, some of the same principles also apply. The way that people get projects developed is to have some land which they can use as collateral for a loan from a bank, typically. But what you're talking about is something different. How would it, how would it work? Let's say a group of people can see a chunk of land and maybe they own it or they somehow get leasehold of it. How does it work from there? Because uh, if you rocked up to a bank with a cooperative idea, I'm not sure <laughs> that they'd, they'd treat it very well. So with the land being put into a trust, it's a form of security. It's intended that that keep it off the speculative market that then enables future astronomical land price rises and therefore price rises for the occupants and residents there as well. So that's one system that's commonly-ish understood. And we have got a few projects that are trying to kick off the ground and some that have secured elements of finance already. And part of that can be done through the structure process. So a cooperative involves a form of share buy-in and that can then help um, be the basis of the equity as well as the land, depending on how it's been um, put into the deal as well, to help give us our what we call capital stack. Tell me about that capital stack. It sounds a bit like a like an IT term, but it's something that um, people in New Zealand might not really understand. So explain for us a capital stack in this housing context. Yeah, so in any form of development, uh, we need to work out how to help be financed and who will be the contributing funders, um, percent, what percentage they might contribute, what order of repayment they will get paid back at, and also what interest rate that will occur as, as well. So there are social impact investors and some of our, I suppose, longer term, longer investment horizon funders that are looking at this space and are working out how best to, I suppose, work through elements of profile of risk and assurance to get this across the line. We're working through ways to help solve that, and one of them would be to see government do underwriting of projects for us to kickstart this process. So you've uh, created a model, if you like, of how this shared investment, this um, cooperative could work, and how professional investors could look to share the risk and get a social return. You know, how, how far away is this from reality? Are there any particular projects or models that have been used that people could say, ah, that's a, that's a good cookie cutter that I could use on another project? Yeah, the Forever Affordable Homes method looks to combine a cooperative form of ownership for the built form and a community land trust model for the landform and those two work best together to give us our best outcome and also give us a whole bunch of other benefits we haven't even touched on yet you know wellness belonging um, sense of community community pride developments that may also have forms of other businesses that form income streams reduce rent so coming back to your question there are different forms of cooperatives that already exist there are a couple of projects in different forms some with public land or married own land and we've also got um, forms of housing trusts which are a very similar but a little bit different version of a land trust so um, overseas and you talked about um, projects in australia and of course um, these are very common even in the united states and in uh, europe continental Europe, where you see these sorts of cooperatives set up. What I'm curious about is, 
just how liquid or saleable they are because you know, people's lives change they might want to move on upsize downsize yeah so they're definitely designed to be quite flexible and adaptable to changing needs and life stages so the model would have a share buy-in that can move with a tenant if they choose to upsize or downsize that moves with them there would just be an adjustment made on their equivalent weekly rent so it's quite an awesome scheme for those that want to stay within their community um, possibly you know, around their, their Fano that they've developed since they've been living there. Um, so, yeah, it's a really great option to, to enable that flexibility. You mentioned the um, the non-tangible benefits of living in these communities, which in New Zealand is relatively rare. We've got a model which is all about standalone houses in suburbs with backyards, whereas it's clear if we're going to solve our not only our climate change uh, requirements to live closer together, closer to our work, closer to play, closer to public transport, closer to walking and cycling, but also in building form, which is actually designed to be integrated with its surrounding community. How do you see these sorts of benefits uh, playing out for people who maybe haven't seen this before? The process involves what we call co-design. So our first occupants who we expect to potentially have a lifelong connection and occupancy with that home are involved in initially in designing it. So we make sure it meets their needs. So we've got even a connection to it before they're even moved in. They've also got connection to their community and those people that are around them before they, they move in. And then when I lived in Amsterdam, I saw these developments that the council would choose to put first as a regeneration kind of amplifier to help bring a new appeal and attraction and interest to a location. Particularly at a time like this, when we're getting quite isolated, being locked down for so long in this day and age, when a lot of younger people have a particular issue with loneliness and building these sorts of communities that are closer and more integrated sounds quite attractive. How would you pitch something like this to, you know, a local government or a central government who are thinking about how to deal with perhaps, say, some bare land they've got or land that they're changing the use of and want to be involved and not just uh, flick it to a developer and, and watch uh, lots of expensive uh, houses go up? I suppose in terms of like, benefits, we perhaps haven't emphasised enough already is we've got this ability to offer, say, um, a hand up, not a handout. We've got the capacity to invest in a way that can be recycled and regenerative and it can be upscaled as well. So once this sector is well established, it can use its investment to keep continuing to purchase and to develop. So it's an investment that um, multiplies and increases. It's not necessarily a form of subsidy that's a whole, it will definitely um, fill itself and continue to grow once it's given the right you know, ingredients initially to, to bloom, shall we say. And it also has proven internationally to offer a better reduction on other welfare needs. So you can imagine if we do prevent loneliness and we do offer capacity building for individuals to learn other skills, you know, then we're likely to be fully employed as well, not just part-time and full-time. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of other uh, health and welfare, mental health, employment benefits that flow on from securing someone's basic need and right to be housed in a place that's healthy and um, is ideally secure. So this is a, a relatively new idea and um, it's quite innovative in, in the New Zealand context, although, as you say, it's a regular thing overseas. What is the current 
feeling you have about how receptive some of the central government, local government and pools of money, the pension funds are to this idea? So we're in early early conversations and discussions and curiously we've even got individual landowners and people who are perhaps more in their twilight years who actually really want to see a legacy and also want this kind of community around them. So they're looking to even create that themselves and part of the... Um, the barrier we're seeing with those sorts of individuals is they just want to not necessarily put up the money to do all the upfront costs as well as their land as well. So we're really needing a, a regenerative kind of funding stream and a, create a whole new sector that can support this flourishing sector. So we do see a little bit of a glimmer of hope through the government policy statement on housing and urban development, specifically mentioning community land trusts and cooperatives and their need to remove barriers for those, including financial. A key way of doing that is making sure there's ongoing land supply. So um, for affordable homes that's been active in the in the inclusionary zoning space, we say inclusionary zoning is a gateway drug to affordable housing. Um, we've got a blog post on the website about that. And with the national policy statement about to uh, mandate the increase of density around our urban centres and transport nodes, it's essential that we look to do this as soon as possible. Well, all power to you, Imogen. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. I've been talking to Imogen Scoots, who is the founder of Forever Affordable Homes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bernard. Now it's time to get an overarching view of the problem and the opportunity with Vic Crockford, who is the CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa. Welcome now to When the Facts Change to Vic Crockford. Thank you very much, Vic, for, for joining us. Oh, kia ora, Bernard. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. Can you give us a, a sense of the, the scale of the problem and the ambition that uh, a government or our society should have to solve the problem? Because there'll be a few people who say, why should the government intervene in a perfectly fine private market which um, seems to house everyone and uh, has done wonderful things for my house price. So mm. what's w- w- why should the government intervene here? Well, unfortunately, I'm going to bring it back to COVID. Uh, no one really probably wants to talk about it, but I think what this particular crisis has illustrated to us is that our homes are our health. Uh, whether you've been stuck in one or whether you've been in housing insecurity, which has increased your potential exposure to the virus, it's very, very clear that our homes are our health. They are a fundamental aspect to human rights and dignity, frankly. Humans all need shelter and our homes function as expressions of our culture. We, you know, all our lived experience is built around them and our communities are built around them. So what I would say to those who say that, the, you know, we've got a perfectly fine private market is that we don't. The market reliance experiment has failed. We've got 129,800 households spending more than 50% of their income on house costs. We've got a public housing waitlist of around 25,000 applicants, and that excludes the children that come along with those applicants. We have a situation in which we have an incoming homelessness crisis for our superannuitants. We've got research that shows that We are pushing our older people into insecure renting situations that are leaving them at risk of homelessness. Our nans, our pops, our komatsua, our kuya. uh, So at either end of our life cycle, we've got kids 
and we've got grandparents who are simply unable to afford a home. So I would say to those that think the market is working fine, well done to you. <laughs> um, it's it's not. And you know what? I would actually acknowledge that there are very few people out there that do not recognise that the problem is systemic and widespread and that we need to do something about it. We have increasingly positive and progressive conversations with funders and developers about how they can pay a part in in supporting, you know, robust market interventions to, to help us course correct. Uh, that's obviously not across the board, but it is increasing. And I think we just need to keep up that cross sector momentum towards change. What are the real challenges uh, to stop you from providing tens of thousands of houses for those half a million people who are in rental stress? Well, as has been well documented, the challenge is 40 years of systematic dismantling of the institutional conditions that supported lower cost home ownership. So that is cross-sector dismantling. No one is incentivised to meet lower cost home ownership anymore. That's the building sector, uh, that's the crown, <laughs> that's the financial institutions uh, and Without a focus on capital, uh, upfront capital, the community housing sector has really been pushed into a focus on uh, gaining, you know, the funding that they can through the income-related rent subsidy, which, it's got it in the title, (laughs) pushes everyone towards a rental model as opposed to an ownership model. Now, there are, there are benefits to the income-related rent subsidy. It's certainly not all bad news. But overall, I would say that we've shifted from home ownership mode to rental mode, and we simply don't have the institutional arrangements nor the construction sector that supports lower-cost models of home ownership. So I've got a report here in front of me from, from KPMG that shows that the cost to delivery for the community housing sector in Auckland for a one-bedroom unit is on average around $446,000. Two bedrooms, $543,000. And that's just to deliver. So over and above that, if you are uh, also providing wraparound social services, you've got tenancy management, you've got potentially, say, mental health outreach or some other form of support built into your cost model, it's starting to look like a pretty expensive exercise. And just finally, um, if you were able to pitch to the bean counters inside the government, <laughs> the ones who uh, write the balance sheet every year, who say these are the assets, these are the liabilities, here's mm. the um, the limits you have on spending, what would you say to them about what needs to happen to reduce future costs? Because we always forget a balance sheet is not just assets, it's future liabilities. And there is an argument to say you could spend money up front now to reduce your collective, societal and governmental liabilities down the track. My pitch is that healthy, affordable homes create community wealth for generations. Uh, I can give you a story from my own life to underscore that. So I was born right at the uh, share market crash um, in 1987 and my 
my father had grown up um, in state housing all his life uh, and probably not too many beans to rub together in order to be able to afford a home. Uh, but my mother, unfortunately, her stepmother died in a car accident just before I was born and she came into a small inheritance, which meant that they could organise a private rent-to-buy scheme uh, with, their current, with the, the landlord of the time to buy the cottage that they were renting off him. Uh, and and renovate it to to become a, a family home, which is the family home I'm currently sitting and talking to you from, and that that my parents that I grew up in and my parents continue to own, and has become the basis for our family wealth. My sister and I have been supported through university. I've been able to um, have all the experiences of middle class privilege based on the fact that a circumstance changed the course of my parents' lives right at the right time. I would say that I'm, you know, that's a that's but one example and think about that across multiple generations and look at our health system and how fearful we are of it being overwhelmed now. Well, I tell you what, the people dealing with housing insecurity and unhealthy homes, they are going to be the ones overwhelming our health system in 30 years' time. Vic Crocker there, the CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa. Thank you very much, Vic. Thank you, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.